0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is music executive and career coach Camille Barbone. First of all, YouTube music video views and YouTube revenue have really increased. Yeah, YouTube's revenue is up 33% in the first quarter to about $4 billion, and most of that comes later in the quarter due to covid Yes, because of isolation, people are watching video more and more, and especially YouTube. So how much of that increase is due to music? Well, it turns out only 5% of all the videos on YouTube are music videos, but they gather more than 22% of the views, and that's more than anything else on the platform except for gaming. As a matter of fact, 80% of all the videos that have a billion views or more come from music and if we look at the number of videos with at least 10 seconds of music in them that's 84% of all videos on YouTube. So YouTube has about 21.5 million subscribers for YouTube music in a way that's very surprising on the high side and on the low side. You'd expect more because YouTube has more than a billion viewers a day So you kind of expect more people to delve into YouTube music. On the other hand, 21.5 million subscribers, nothing to sneeze at. And that's pretty far up the food chain. Now, don't forget that even though YouTube made $4 billion just in the last quarter, 55% of all ad revenue goes to content owners. That's opposed to 70, 75% on other platforms so what's happening is youtube is taking a whole lot of dough and that's one of the big bones of contention that you're not getting enough money from youtube you're not paying enough in royalties that still amounts to about 1.8 billion a year in money that does go back to the record industry so there's a lot of money that's coming from youtube but they're generating so much more and it's increasing all the time If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOwnerCircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at BobbyOwnerCircle.com and download free eBooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at BobbyOwnerCircle.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now, speaking of things that are soaring and speaking of things that are surprising, the sales of music gear are out of sight during our isolation due to COVID. Amazing, isn't it? Apple has found there's a 55% increase in searches for GarageBand. There's 13 million downloads a month of GarageBand. Apogee and Roland have had their best months ever. Splice samples are experiencing more than 1 million downloads per day. Reverb.com found their searches are up 50%. This is what really got me. Sweetwater has double the visitors from their highest point in the year, which is usually around Thanksgiving. They're shipping between fifteen to 20,000 orders per day, and they have 5,000 new customers per day, which are mostly new users. Guitar Center has found a big increase in sales of acoustic guitars and especially ukuleles. What's been found is these are mostly new users. They're between the ages of 11 to 15 and above 40 years old. And they want to learn how to use what they have. So online classes are exploding at places like Roland Academy and Guitar Center. The biggest increases are with synthesizers, keyboards, beat production equipment, drum machines, sequencers, and DJ controllers. And then beyond that, people want to record what they've just created. So there's big increases in the pro audio front on computer interfaces, microphones, speakers, digital audio workstation software, and searches for interfaces are up about 300%. People are also upgrading their studios, but maybe not with major purchases. They're doing a lot of small ones for drum heads, guitar parts, strings, things like that. So surprisingly enough, even though sales are down in most retail, when it comes to musical gear, sales are up and everyone is doing particularly well, especially if you have an online presence. My guest today is Camille Barbone, who's done just about every behind-the-scenes job in the music business you can think of. From working as a label executive for Columbia and EMI, to managing Madonna, to owning the famous Longview Farm and Gotham Sound Studios, to producing major concerts and tours, and more, Camille has a wide range of experience that has served her well in every position. She's also provided marketing consultation to major labels and publishers, and handled music events and promotions for companies like Dunkin' Donuts, Jaguar Motor Cars, Boys and Girls Club of America, BISF, and others. Camille holds both a degree in psychology and an MBA, which coupled with her extensive entertainment industry experience, became the foundation for her current coaching and consulting business. During the interview, we spoke about her favorite label job, what's it like to own a world-class studio, how a degree in psychology helps her deal with people in the music business and artists, and much, much more. I spoke with Camille via Skype from her home in Florida. You've really spanned different areas and jobs. Tell me how you started in the music business.
1: Yeah. It's so, it's, it was so interesting. I visited some relatives of mine in California, both of which were pretty high profile engineers at the time with big names. And one of them invited me to the studio and, uh, I had no idea. I was 20 something, 21 years old, something like that. And, uh, my cousin said, you want to come to work with me? And, and I said, yeah. And it was like 8 o'clock at night, and he had jeans on, and he had sunglasses on. And I said, he's going to work. I kind of like this idea. <laughs> we go into a studio, sit down on this beautiful leather couch, and I f- realize that he is actually cutting a track for the Santana Abraxas album. Mm. And we're in San Francisco, and it's Carlos Santana laying down the the, the solos for Oye, Oye Como Va. Huh. I'm telling you, I, it, it's like, I just sat there. And I said, wow, this is an amazing business. It's an amazing thing to get involved with. I want to be in this business. And I came back to New York and I started to apply for jobs at record companies, but I had always, always loved music. When I was a kid growing up, I was a bit of an audiophile and I used to pick the singles and, and, you know, read all the liner notes. Um, so I fell in love with the business early on, but then just experiencing what my cousins experienced in California it was the the deal for me so I applied at Columbia and they didn't have an opening today's Sony but they did have an opening in radio so I took the opening in radio and about um I'd say about six months to a year later an opening came up in uh in in the records division and I took it and uh I was 23 2 years old at that point in time and I I've not done nor loved a business anything more than than this. This is this is my life. I love everything about the business.
0: You've done apparently a lot of jobs within a label from what I could tell. What was your favorite?
1: Well, you know, the one I think my favorite was the one that taught me how to do all the other jobs and that was the first job I had in the music business. It was new release coordinator. I became the coordinator, I became the manager, and then I finally became the director of the department. And its function, the position, was to um, keep all the departments, 28 of them, on schedule to make releases at various times that fit into their marketing plans. And sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars were in the, uh, the balance And um, it was my job to make sure every department did what they were supposed to do on a timely basis. So I learned the business literally from the outside in. Uh, It it was it it was really one of the best educations I could have Um, that prepared me uh, for uh, going out on my own. But the job that I loved the most was when I had to interact with artist managers and that's when I finally did leave the labels. That's when I decided I wanted to be an artist manager and I wanted to own a studio. So that's kind of where it took me Went independent in 77. Um, after I had a stint as director of A&R for Buddha records, which was then sold to Arista st- opened up my first studio uh, called Gotham sound in New York and started m- my management company in earnest.
0: I could see how, At least back then, it well, even today, really, it makes a lot of sense if you have a studio connected to uh, management. A little easier back then from the standpoint that it was more expensive to own a studio, so an artist couldn't do it. But that being said, it sounds like a lot to have on your plate because management is a lot to begin with, and a studio is a lot of work also. So how did you reconcile that?
1: Well, you know, it, the, the studio became my base of operation. And, and the reason why I decided to own a studio was every time I got involved in management situations, it was a component that the artist needed desperately. And as you well know, back in those days, it was pretty expensive to go into a studio. Um, it, it, you know, I mean, we didn't have digital, we didn't have Pro Tools, we didn't have the things that we have today that made it less expensive. Uh, so for me, it was an economic decision. I always needed studios, I needed rehearsal space, I was spending a lot of money as a manager, and so I decided I might as well spend the money once and for all and have my studio and allow my my artists first pick of the t- the, the hours. And it worked out beautifully. In fact, it, it really attracted a lot of uh, artists that were looking for representation. Uh, but let me tell you, it was 24 seven, I, I mean, 80, 90, 120-hour weeks, not much sleep, grateful that I was doing what I love doing. You know, I joke all the time and say there really isn't a job in the music business I haven't had. I've promoted um, major concerts. I have um, produced albums. I have worked with songwriters. I have booked bands. I've done so many different things, you know. Um and it it's it just adds to what I'm able to bring to my coaching, and the book that I'm writing is all about all the things that I've learned in the music business. But in terms of, of uh, preparing me to deal with anybody's problems that are that that, that desire a profession in in the industry, um, I've got a really wonderful database of information because of all the things that I've done. But I have to say, artist management, because it's such a central point in, in an artist's career. And, and because it's so di- diverse, and it, um, it is involving every aspect of the artist's career, I learned so much, you know. And you know. Th- then later on, I went to school and uh, got a degree in psychology because I thought that would be great to be able to learn how to really interact with, with artists and, and the crazies that go <laughs> on when, when you're dealing with creativity. Uh, so I got a degree in psychology and then later on I got an MBA, uh, which kind of fleshed everything out and, and I think makes my, my coaching that much more effective. So 20 something years of experience, a solid education and, um, and a lot of knowledge about running companies, uh, puts me in a great position to help, uh, when, when people want to enter this business, I work with a lot of companies That are starting up in the music industry. I I work with a lot of ramp ups. Um, I've worked with two publicly traded companies that have started. I'm now working with a company on the West Coast uh, that's involved in, oh, I'd say every different aspect of the music business. They're very well funded. Uh, They're doing publishing, they're doing promotion, they're doing administration and and, uh, collections for, for publishing. Um, So I'm in a, I'm really in a great place. But I will tell you this, Bobby. I am still learning this business because of technology continues to evolve, and because it continues to evolve, it's the onus is on me to to keep up with it. So it's it, like I finally got the wish. I'm a perpetual perpetual student.
0: <laughs> well, I want to get into your consulting in a little bit, but considering the number of jobs that you've had and the wide variety of jobs. Which was your favorite when you look back?
1: Um, absolutely! Artist management was my favorite. Absol- absolutely, it, you know, you're you're closest to the heat. You um, you 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 deal with a lot of diverse um, uh, situations. You're making deals in film. You're making deals in television. You're working with a live performance. You have to deal with tour. I think that's my my favorite because it's it's the most exciting and. No day is the same when you're an artist manager. Everything is very different. So I think that's my favorite. And that's why I think coaching has become my favorite now because it's like being a manager on a day-to-day basis with a bunch of different clients. The only difference is it's not Uh, commission-based. But I think I'm still managing, but only from a coaching point of view.
0: I want to go back to your studio days. Longview Farms, I can always remember. I was never there. It was always in the news. Some of the albums that I love the best came out of there. It was just a, such an iconic place for the time. But yet it was it was not easily accept, accessible. How did you make that happen?
1: Well, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about it is it was completely self-contained. 125 acres in rural Massachusetts. But it's, it was kind of like country in meets recording studio. So we had beautiful accommodations, we had a, a, a landing strip for private planes, we had a 24 seven cook, it was very secluded. And that's why it attracted people like the Rolling Stones and Aerosmith and Stevie Wonder, um, they were completely um, safe there. They could roam around, they could ride the horses we had, they could swim in the pool or the pond, they could take a walk in the woods. Um, they liked it. Uh, and, and it was kind of a getaway and it also enabled them to focus a great deal. So we didn't really have a lot of trouble getting clients. We used to deal directly with the studios in New York in terms of clients who were having problems, didn't want to do that. And they'd want to come and transfer to us or they'd mix up with us and, and go back down or they would just lay down their tracks. We worked with a lot of studios in conjunction with their functions in big cities as well. But uh I think the labels liked it a lot because they could control their artists and their budgets better uh, because it was all self-contained in one place. So there were no hotels. You didn't have to worry about per diems. You didn't have to worry about everything. It was an all in kind of thing. Beautiful idea, you know, a really beautiful idea. And then when we, in in the early nineties, we had SSL boards just up until that point in time. And after a lot of rolling around all over the floors and begging my partners and, and, and my head engineer, we finally got the Neve of my dreams, oh. you know, and I was very happy. So we had an SSL board, and we have a knee, we had a knee knee board, and then we had a small digital board when when they came into play. But we had three studios. Uh, we had a soundstage that we had built for the Rolling Stones to rehearse on, and all that was wired so we could do live performances and record them like nobody else. I mean, it, it was a really interesting low tech, high tech kind of kind of uh, studio. We didn't have a lot of outboard gear, but we used the physicality of the studio as, to to enhance and provide effects. Um, and and the guys that engineered there really knew how to work the building. And we had some great producers there and great mixers there too. We had Jack Joseph Puig. We had. Uh, um, nico bolo we had a bunch of really great people there um and you know and and they they worked with our engineers most of the time outside engineers didn't really know how to work work the place so our in-house engineers really knew what they were doing some beautiful music came out of that place some great sounding great sounding albums came out
0: now you've worked with so many different artists i'm curious is there one that was really the toughest to work with and you don't have to name any names but just what made that artist particularly tough to work with
1: well you know we we have a tendency to create artists in in a light where where they're they're very demanding and they require a certain environment and certain things around them um i i think i think the the um they give up a lot. Let me just put it this way: they give up a lot of their their privacy, and and for that, I think uh, they they deserve to be treated differently. Not necessarily specially, but differently. I think the biggest uh, the the biggest problem was an artist that was just cantankerous and ornery, just for the hell of it. Um, and, you know, there there was no valid reason. It was just it was just they wanted to be pampered, uh, and and. You, you have to acquiesce to stuff like that. I can't say any of them were were, were like the worst. you know. I can't say anybody was like, oh God, I'll, ne- I'll never work with them again. The only thing I would say is I would know how to work with that individual a second time if I had a really hard time with them the first. You know, there are just some things you can't fix. <laughs> you, you can't make a flight materialize if there isn't one. You can't make a, a different hotel room materialize when there isn't one. And those were the people that that were the most difficult. I don't care what you have to do, fix this. Sometimes you can't fix it. And the people that wouldn't take no for an answer when you've tried everything were the most difficult to deal with. And they do exist.
0: <laughs> so what are you most passionate about?
1: Um, what am I? I'm most passionate about the next generation of the music business doing this right. That's what I'm most passionate about. Um, caring about the quality of the music, you know, in, in many, many, many years ago, the, the labels kind of operated and functioned as a filter. Nothing got on the radio unless a record label signed it. So there was a very refined type of music that people could could access. I think the quality of the music was great. I think the the, the number of, of releases were a whole lot smaller, um, and and so there was a higher quality. I'm passionate about the quality. When you read a statistic like there are 40,000 new tracks on the Internet every day, how do you wade through all that? How do you know what's great? What should be on the radio? So quality control, I think, is a very important thing right now, and we don't have it. Audiences are spread across the internet, as much bandwidth as we have, is how many people can access certain things. Um, I think that it behooves everybody to um, to care more about the music, to, to care more about the things that we used to care about. Are there are there songs that can break a career? Are you a one hit wonder? Do you have other songs? What about your live performance? I don't I don't see a lot of great live performances anymore. I don't see a lot of great songwriting. I see a lot of trends in songwriting and they're all very good, but I, I don't see those breakout singles anymore. Um, that, uh, that have launched careers. I think we have a, a much wider swath of mid to high end, uh, artists now, and just a very small tier of really big stars. Um, and I don't think that that's bad. Um, I just think that it's different. So quality for me, um, and, and, uh, Um, professionalism is probably the most important thing.
0: You know, you mentioned live performances, and I agree with you. I think part of it is the fact that way back when there was sort of a farm team where there was lots of places to play while you were learning your craft, and you got good at it. And now there are many artists that start right off on a stadium or arena level without ever having gone through that. So they're never in a position to learn. And I think it's the same way with songwriting where that used to be kind of passed down and now it's not so much. So, you know, things are different the way it works today for better, for worse.
1: I completely agree. And you know, you use an analogy that I use all the time too, about a farm team. There's not an opportunity to perfect their, their, their art. And the very fact that that, they go onto the internet and they, they, they post videos and stuff like that. I, when I when I work with clients, the first thing that I do is I say, let's review what you have online and let's make sure it's of the quality and the ilk that you need it to be in order to begin the process of, of developing your career. I think artist development teams don't even come into play until somebody is already on the on the, the fringe of breaking. And you really need people to help you. Uh, So I think a lot of DIY works, but there comes a point in time where you need professional help. And that's not what we're seeing. And I think that's why the quality is suffering. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I go back to the to the era when record companies used to have a three album or three release formula and and it was used to help develop the artist and that's how superstars were made people like billy Joel, first two three albums didn't sell very well you know and then all of a sudden we find just the way you are or, or one of the other songs and then the career starts to build we don't have that pause now everything is out there for you for public consumption and nobody gets a, a chance to really work with a, a higher expectation and quality of their work, I I that I think that's and that that harkens back to what you were asking me earlier about what's the most important thing for me. Um, I think more development is necessary, and also record companies aren't developing anymore. That's been left mostly to managers or to the artists themselves. I I've provided an, an alternative. I do a lot of coaching on artist development. And uh, it, it's important to understand if you're going to compete, you have to compete on all these different levels. You have to be the, the quadruple thread. You have to be a, a great writer or or have access to great songs. You have to have a great live performance. You have to have all your, your legal stuff in a row. You have to be sure your papers are right. You're, you're working with collaborations and all this kind of stuff. You need all that right and then you need to be a, a great vocalist or great performer, you know? I mean, it's, it's really important um, that the quality is there. And I think a lot of times the quality isn't there until it's already in our face. I mean, you, the, it, it's very interesting. We, we see artists successful immediately. It's very hard to see how they've gotten to that point though. And, and is it more than 2 million followers? On, on, on Facebook or Instagram that makes them signable. I could have 2 million s- followers and, and and suck on stage, you know? Yeah. And, that's, and that happens sometimes. Uh, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of great stars out there right now, but I think with 40,000 tracks a day, I think we have to kind of sh- slog through a lot of debris to get to them.
0: When an artist comes to you f- for consulting – Is there one thing that they seem to come to you for, or is there a variety of help that they're looking for?
1: Well, the first thing they want to know is if I'm going to avail all my contacts to them. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first question. If I coach with you, will you, will you turn me on to the president of Zoni? And I generally say, if your product is right, I will. But if your product is wrong, I won't. Most of the time, their product is not properly developed or hasn't evolved yet. And so basically we work towards getting it to a point where I would feel good about calling up a, a business associate of mine and saying, hey, I think you need to take a look at this. And I have a young artist right now that that, that actually came to me and needs very, very little development that I I, I will turn on to some of, of my contacts and, and hopefully secure a deal for him. Um, but they, most of the time it's it's that can can you expedite my getting closer to the music business because nobody's returning my calls i have no you know nobody's looking at my my instagram nobody's looking at my youtube my soundclouds are only getting you know uh, 200 plays and and basically that's the thing we have to remedy first you know that they, they, they there's no shortcut and i think i think the internet has has giving people the illusion that success is is instant just add water and stir and it just isn't that way
0: yeah it, it's a lot harder than i think everybody thinks and you see the success stories but it you know it's the same as it's always been where those success stories are few and far between i look at it and i, I think gee it's no harder or easier today than it used to be it's just different you know what i mean
1: I agree. I agree, Bobby. I think it. I think it's it's different only because we're not dealing with one A and R person in a in a uh, a record company that gets forty or fifty tapes uh, tapes then uh, a week and and goes through them and sees if anything is good and moves on. I mean, th- we're surfing the internet. We're looking at hundreds, thousands of people at all times, and. Where do you go to find you know the pearl in in the oyster? you know it's it's harder to find. and like of course, when you're in music centers, you're very picked over. Um, I live part of the time in St. Petersburg, Florida, and i and I, I coach people all over the world because just the way we're we're skyping, that's the best way to 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 interact when you're dealing with people. But there's so much talent here in, in St. Petersburg. And there are clubs in, in which people can perform. And they get they actually get paid. And and all these wonderful opportunities. And yet the the, the the music industry per se, the mainstream music industry, hasn't come down here to see what's going on. There are signable artists in a lot of small cities like this. And and I think that's where the difficulty is. You're, you're relying on the internet uh, when you really need to still get out there and see what's going on. Granted, you get your uh, you get your cues from the internet, oh, there's a little activity going here and there's a little activity going there, but you have to get it before it peaks because if it peaks, somebody's already signed them. So um, I think it's very, very important to put your best foot forward, your best voice forward on the internet, I, I don't think there's an opportunity um, to put sub-level uh, music or performances or anything like that on there. It just clogs the, the pipes. I, I think people need to care more about how they're presenting themselves. Most of the artists don't know, and and when I start to coach with them, they start to understand what they have to do. We talk about competition. We talk about a scant two percent of of all the music. Uh, released actually breaks through and gets some traction. Um, they start to understand the odds. Um, it is different uh, but I think the I think just the sheer volume makes it more difficult now.
0: You know it's funny I think there's a fallacy that you can be very uh, DIY about things. very casual about making either recordings or videos and it's okay. You know it's funny because there are some artists, superstars have some way of transcending it where you can have that and it works for them. but it it's only for the point zero zero one percent. doesn't work for everybody else, but there's that fallacy that you can get away with it.
1: I agree. It is a fallacy and, and it, it, again I, if if I have to say the thing that most makes the light bulb go off when I'm working with with clients from a coaching point of view, is for them to really pay attention to the videos and content that really is getting huge hits, huge engagement, because they're generally pretty damn good, the ones that are really getting good ones. And you have to, you have to look at that. You have to say, look at, the, look at the quality level there, and then let's look at your thing. OK, you can't settle. Well, I don't have enough money. Then don't do anything until we can find a way to get this to work for you on a level where you're competitive. You know, it, it's it, you know, there, there used to be a, a, a wine commercial. We, we will sell no wine until it's time. Well, it's about the same thing with artists. Huh. You really shouldn't start pitching yourself until you're ready. You should be you should be competitive. you should have the song, you should have the performance, you should have the look. you know and and I guarantee you if all those those things are aligned, people will take notice. I, I worked with a, um, an 11 year old here who was so com- charismatic on stage. I, I it was it was unbelievable. took him in the studio, gave him four killer songs. You know, he's he's gigging now. He just wanted, you know, wanted to go on the, the, you know, American Idol kind of, you know, America's Got Talent routine. Just stay with it. Just Stay with your videos. Just just put quality videos out. And now we've got a couple of labels snooping around and, and asking about them and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I think people really need to understand DIY is is kind of like the Peter Principle. You do it yourself until you don't know how to do it yourself anymore. Yeah. And because you're at a level of incompetence. And I gently tell my coaching clients where their level of incompetence is and where they need to get some professional help. There are people out here that know how to um, to produce and, and engineer and, and set up live performances and do imagings But that's what you need to be a superstar. You don't do it alone. You know, an artist development team is crucial uh, to success. And, uh, you know, a DIY approach only works for so long and gets you so far.
0: You know, you mentioned before that you went back to school after having some success in the business to get a degree in psychology. What did that teach you that helped you down the line?
1: Um, you know we, we talked about artists and and you know difficulty not not so nice to work with work with i I think individuals that are are creative and artistic are, are are very unique and and i and I say this with such a such amount of love there's a very fine line between brilliance and insanity and and I don't mean that in in any derogatory way at all in in order to Think of some of the most successful songs in the business or think of some of the most uh, monumental performances we've seen as as aficionados in the music business. That's genius. That's sheer genius. And you have to understand what they're giving up to be as to be iconic, to be superstars. Uh, I I think. Understanding the creative process and understanding the creative mind was very important to me. I, I always joke I speak I speak artist. You know I understand it's it's a selfish profession. Um, it's a self centered profession. And how do you keep them um, level headed? How do you keep them easier to work? How how do they stay easier to work with? There's some people that are dreams to work with. They're so secure, and there are other people that aren't. So I thought my, my, my degree in, in, in psychology, a master's in psychology was going to help me. I also thought that I might go on for a PhD and work with some of these people that shoot themselves in the foot at the 11th hour when they're going to break big, because that's another problem that goes on Mm. in the music business. There's a lot of self-destruction. There's a lot of fear of success that goes on. There's a lot of acting out you know, you got to think about it. You know, there's your dream and, and your dream is unfolding and you've got all these people talking to you and telling you different things. And you've got a syncophantic single, single kind of thing that goes on too where where you've got people around you that say, don't worry about it, I'll take care of everything. Um, I've got this covered. And what basically is happening when artists managers do that and when, when pe- professionals do that is we're making our artists helpless. I've It's always been my policy to teach my artists, about the business. I never did anything blindly. I never said, I got this covered, don't worry about it. I'd sit down and explain copyright to them, mechanical royalty, uh, performing rights, what's ASCAP, what's BMI. They understood more as opposed to, don't worry, I got you covered. So psychology helped me to learn how to give artists the most important information and and then to gauge their reactions in a way where it became Constructive as opposed to de- destructive.
0: You see artists that shoot themselves in the foot at the eleventh hour. Are there warning signs that that's going to happen beforehand?
1: You can usually see it. The signs are there. But I've I've seen artists self destruct like at at press conferences when when you know they have hits on the charts. Um, I've seen them do really serious damage to themselves, maybe get loaded in the bar and then do the do the the conference or some, you know, screw with their screw with their their visuals, with their with their their appearance. Um, I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of self-destructive behavior over the years at at times when everything was going beautifully in their careers and they didn't have a strong artist development team around them. And no one was really paying attention to the signs of, of this artist going off the rails. You know, if you go back and we think, think about some of these careers and all, I, we, we lost a few people that we shouldn't have lost. Mm. Um, Amy, Amy Winehouse comes to mind. I mean, right there, I mean, there, there was sheer genius and, 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 you know, they she surrounded herself with a lot of yes people, a lot of syncophants, You know, and 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 the 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 guy that that found her and managed her initially was the only one that was running around saying you have to get into rehab. You know, everybody else is no because their paycheck is dependent upon Amy Winehouse, and I think that's that's the problem too. How do you speak truth to power? That's another thing that that I think my my psychology degree helped me with. You have to be honest. And you have to be willing to, to to take the consequences if you're too honest. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way I can put it. But I would rather say I don't think that this is a good idea to an artist as opposed to just BSing the artist and say, oh, this is the best song you've ever written, and oh, my God, I can't believe how, that dress looks sensational on you when she looks ridiculous. You know, there's a lot of yeses that go on that shouldn't be yeses. But because – your paycheck depends on that person. A lot of the support people around artists shy away from the truth.
0: Again, you've done so much in the business and so many different areas. What was the biggest mistake that you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: All right, I will tell you the biggest mistake. And, you know, I had the book coming out, and the book is about 30% my working with Madonna and about 70% about how the music business works. And and memoirs and stuff like that. And I tell how the business works through stories from people like Linda Perry and Joe Galante and people that were in the business and really in the front lines. I think the biggest mistake I made was when Madonna was moving over to Freddie DeMann as management, they offered me a job to manage her under Freddie DeMann's umbrella. And I refused. (laughs) That was it. Oh, boy. I worked on my own but that was it. And, 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 you know, in retrospect, you know, and there's more about it in the book, more elaboration on it. But I think that was probably the biggest mistake I made.
0: When is the book due out?
1: Uh, the, the book is due out in fall 2020. It's looking like we'll still be on schedule with what's going on in the world right now. I don't know, but uh, that's what my, my, my plan is. And that's what the pl- the marketing plan says. So, it's a great read, and it, and it it talks about how the business works, but not in a, a lofty kind of, uh, you know, Don Passman kind of way. It it talks it tells you how things work by the stories people tell,
0: mm.
1: and it's you know, and and I've been blessed with some great interviews um, that that will come out and and address things like being dropped from a label or catch and kill or. All the, you know, uh, the, the very situation that Taylor Swift just went through with owning the masters and not owning the masters and how the labels work. There's so much to know about this business. Uh, and, and not many people know it because it's really, really complex. I mean, publishing in and of itself is so complex. And now with the Internet and streaming and, and downloading and all the, the technology, there's more to learn. You have how many different agencies collecting performing rights royalties and mechanical royalties now? I can name six. Yeah, right. You know, what does ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC do? You know, where's Song Trust? You got to know these things. And when I coach people that aspire to be managers, I have handouts and I have information that teaches them the right way to do things, how this really works. I've taught artist management at Baruch College in New York. I started their entertainment uh, marketing department there and put their internship r- program together. I, you know, I, 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 I spoke at uh, Full Sail not too recently, and uh, about two, three months ago, and I just did a thing for um, St. Petersburg College. They have a, a, a recording program. And I think the schools, like the Clive Davis NYU School, I think these schools are fabulous. Too often, however, the schools concentrate on the production and engineering side and don't concentrate on the business side. And I think the business side is really, really important.
0: That's been my big problem with most recording and production programs at colleges. There's very few of them that concentrate on the entrepreneur angle. And when you're in the music business, you're an entrepreneur, no matter which way you look at it. Even if you work for a label or a publishing company or something that's relatively stable, that job doesn't last forever. So you really have to get the entrepreneur chops together, because that's what you are if you're going to stay in the business.
1: I agree completely. Um, you, you know, our artist artist management is is complete entrepreneurial, and there are you know, if you want, even if you want to be an agent. You know, even whether you work for yourself or you work for ICM or CAA, you basically have a roster that is your responsibility. So you're running a business within a business. There's also the aspect that you make your name for yourself in the music business and you can break out and be a very effective and very successful entrepreneur after you've paid your dues. I paid my dues at at labels at a very early age, but then I went, you know, learned from the school of hard knocks. And then afterwards, about 15 years into my career, I was asked to um, head up a couple of independent labels, you know, so I, I, I went full circle. So I went from labels, independent school, back to doing labels and back to being independent again. And, and I found that a lot that I learned when I was on my own, when it was my own resourcefulness that kept the lights on and the, and the workers paid um, from that. It's a survival kit, and and that, I think, is the most important aspect of the business is to is to develop that that entrepreneurial uh, skill set, that that tireless amount of energy, that rejection has to give you energy as opposed to deflating you. Um, I think all those things are very important, and I think you really do need that entrepreneurial spirit in order to get into the business on any level.
0: What's the name of the book, Camille?
1: Uh, it's called Rogue to Vogue. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's great. I'm going to be looking for it. This looks like it's going to be a good one.
1: Bobby, it's a great read. It's a, it's a fun read, but it's informative and you know, it, 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 it's really, um, going to, I think, fill fill a bit of a gap, uh, that exists in, in, uh, the, the, the literature you can get to learn how to be an artist manager or to learn how to be a record label, uh, professional. Um, you know, it, even, you know, if, if you aspire to go to law school and, and you want to be in the music business, most of the time, if you're a lawyer in the music business, you'll wind up running a label. You know, it's, yeah, right. it's, There's so many things that you can do in the music business now. I, that's when, when I do um, public speaking and stuff, I, I try and leave them with a, a handout, a list of all the different jobs you can have in the music business. Uh, because as technology grows, so do the opportunities.
0: Last question, Camille. What is the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe it was imparted to you?
1: Wow, best piece of advice. You know, one of my mentors was Jack Rollins. Uh, He was a a manager and he managed only one music act and that music act was leaving him and that's how I met him. But Jack managed uh, Billy Crystal and um, some very big, big names. And his advice stays with me, and I I touched on it earlier. You have to learn everything you possibly can. And you have to be able to discern what's real information and what isn't real information. I think you, you just don't search on the internet and you find out all this information. You have to go to three or four sources. You have to really learn. How this business works, and that's my hope for the next generation. When I do live live speaking, that's what I say. If this is the legacy that we're handing over to you, we came. My generation came at a time where you had to you had to find out how to do it, and you did it by talking to people that knew how to do it. If you can find a mentor, I think uh, you you should use that mentor. Uh, to, to learn everything you need to, to learn. And for me, that, that's it. It's a, I never stop learning. You know, I just uh, I, there's a there's a new company and it, it's it's a confidential uh, um, deck that they sent me and it's very complex and it has to do with publishing and all. And I literally had to sit down and take notes and ask questions in order to understand the model of the business. And I've been doing this a lot of years, and I don't take it lightly, Bobby. I still say, okay, let me research that. Let me figure out what's going on. I think we need to drill down deeper, Hmm. uh, and we need to, to, to tell the next generation that they have to drill down deep too in order to understand every aspect of this business and be effective.
0: You can find out more about Camille and find out about her book and consulting at CamilleBarbone.com. That's Camille Barbone, C A M I L L E B A R B O N E, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinsky's Inner Circle, go to Bobby select the podcast tab, or go to BobbioInnerCircle.com. Or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.